0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Is this COVID's second wave? And if it is, how worried should we be? In this podcast, The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart, talks to the investor and statistician Alistair Haymes about whether the data really stacks up for a resurgence of COVID-19.
1: Alistair Haymes, in early July this year, there were about 300 to 500 new cases in the UK every day. Uh, Now there's um, a double that, sometimes more than double that. There's about a thousand new cases of COVID-19 a day, is this the second wave?
0: Well, I get very nervous um, trying to make uh, predictions about where we are in the various uh, trajectories of of the epidemic based on cases. I think using cases as the prime metric has been very, very problematic throughout. In the early days, it was throttled by the lack of availability of testing. Then we've muddied the waters further by introducing different pillars of testing, whereby rather than just testing sick people, we test NHS workers, then mass surveillance testing. Uh, And then it's been further polluted by contact tracing where you would expect to find uh, more cases, uh, although asymptomatic. Uh, And at no point really have we been able to compare a single month or really hardly a single week's figures with the previous ones. So I think using cases to work out uh, where we are in the in the in the wave or second wave is very very problematic. I think better data to use, and we talked about this um, maybe the last podcast back in May. I think we, we have we have some harder figures that won't be throttled by the um, availability or protocol of testing. We have the triage calls, which is people calling one 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 or nine 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 or using one 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 online, uh, and that would be a you know, precursor to people turning up ill at hospital. We have hospital admissions. Uh, we have the people who are hospitalised, admitted to intensive care, and finally we have deaths. And all of those, as it were, um, harder bits of data have all been consistently pointing in the right direction. Uh, you know, since since the spring, there's been absolutely no hint of a second wave in any of those bits of data. Um, uh, was, despite um, protests and riots and celebrations. Uh, everything has been consistently pointing in the right direction, and it's only if you use cases that there would be um, any hint of a, a you know of, a, of resurgence. But then it's much more to do with the fact that when um, areas are locked down, uh, there is you know, there's, there's 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 mass testing in those areas. Uh, people are encouraged, although they've got no symptoms whatsoever and haven't even been contact traced, they're encouraged to get tested, and you know, throughout this epidemic, where you test, you find. So I think the only the only suggestion that there's any second wave in the UK uh, is if you look at cases, and if you just don't look at cases, there's absolutely no indication of a second wave. I mean, we don't, we don't look at cases for influenza during the summer because we know it spreads, but it doesn't make people ill. Um, but for some reason, we do seem to be um, looking at them for COVID. Which I
1: well, it, it's very interesting, isn't it, that uh, whatever measure of statistics we use to, sh- to seemingly show an increase in the number of cases, the, the number of deaths, uh, both in the UK and in Europe, is much lower than it was in uh, earlier peaks back in, in March and, and April. Uh, we are, uh, you know, some, in England and Wales, I mean, we've been looking at about, um, uh, over the last few weeks, about 20 deaths. Uh, a day. Yes. Why, why is it then that the death rate is, is so low? Is it, you know, as, as you've just been discussing, we're wrong to be looking at, at cases as, as the measure, or is it actually that, that the virus has mutated in, into something less serious?
0: Well, on that latter point, uh, I'm not the guy to ask. I'm not a virologist or an immunologist. Uh, just reading Twitter from people who are, They say there is, um, in general, not very much sign of any mutation. And as I understand it, coronaviruses mutate much slower than, for example, influenza viruses. Uh, I think there has been talk of a less virulent strain um, starting to spread in Asia, but I don't really follow all that, to be honest. I mean, One thing you can say is that if you look at the the curves uh, in in, uh, death data by the date that people actually died, rather than when it makes it through the vagaries of reporting, you get an entirely predictable, um, slightly lopsided uh, bell curve, and it's exactly the same curve whether you look at it in Spain or the UK or Sweden, uh, or or certainly northern uh, US, the northern states of the US that were hit early. It is an identical, identical curve, and it would suggest to me that it's simply um, it's simply the virus working its way through the population, and the the, the decrease in the growth rate of um, of the figures of people dying, it's slightly technical, but basically shows you how quickly uh, the epidemic is decelerating, it has been fairly constant throughout. Um, so I think the default assumption here should always have been that it's a virus that's working its way through a population as they do. It gradually finds it harder and harder to find susceptible people. Um, firstly, because there are fewer susceptible people, because people have been infected, and secondly, because it will tend to hit first the people who are, yeah, as it were, more sociable, and have more social interactions first. And gradually it finds it harder and harder to find the nooks and crannies that it hasn't uh, yet reached. So I think the default assumption um, would have to be that it's just worked its way through. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that I think people have stopped using slightly out of embarrassment, but the, the initial herd immunity conversations we were having in the spring, it does sort of look like that's what it's doing. Maybe not herd immunity, maybe better ways to think about it would be it's just reached saturation you know at a certain point the, the sponge sort of can't hold any more water and the population has just sort of been fully saturated um, with you know with the virus so if you know, if that if that, were
1: the, if that was to be the case then hmm. countries like the UK and Sweden um, should be in a in a much uh, better position um, than uh, countries like Australia and New Zealand which have Um, at great cost to personal liberty been successful at keeping uh, the virus out of their countries, largely successful keeping the virus out of their countries in the first place. They they are therefore still uh, uh, um, very much at risk.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They've been incredibly successful because they locked their their countries down before the virus could really get in. Uh, But the problem in doing that obviously is you you, you maintain a fully susceptible population. uh, And unless you want to keep yourself locked off from the rest of the world um, forever, that, the virus is going to find its way in and it will you know, take its toll as they go around. the doubtless they'll argue that by the time it does, you know, treatment protocols will be further advanced. Maybe there'll be a vaccine that makes a significant difference and they will have bought themselves some time. But yeah, they'll have a fully susceptible population and we won't. But just coming back to the UK and Sweden, I mean, the one... I'm a, I'm a real kind of well, optimist on these things, but the one thing that gives me a bit of caution about the UK and Sweden is that um, these respiratory viruses do tend to follow a very strong seasonal pattern. Uh, this is the case for influenza, uh, and it's a very, very predictable thing, uh, every flu season. And, you know, we haven't seen this coronavirus before, so we don't really know what kind of pattern it will follow. But if it were to follow the same pattern as as a flu, then we would have actually started, we would have expected it to start subsiding when it subsided. And we might be fearful that it might start to come back when the influenza viruses come back in, you know, let's call it sort of around November time. So I don't think we can really sort of rest easy and say that there won't be any significant um, second wave until we've made it sort of into the winter, maybe not through the winter, but if we get to sort of mid-winter and there's no significant second wave, albeit there's bound to be a few local clusters and outbreaks, um, you know, I, I think it's not until then that we'll, that we'll know that the, you know, the herd immunity slash saturation theory is correct. Um, and in fact, you see, you see this exact uh, issue in America at the moment, because if you were just to look at uh, figures for the USA as a whole, you might well think that the US is going through a second wave. It looks like a kind of double hump traumadry, uh, the, the case and death pattern. But actually, you know, the US is really more like a continent. The, 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 northern, um, the northern states uh, have got a completely different sort of weather pattern and different pattern the way people live than the, the southern states. You know, the temperate states are very difficult to the subtropical ones. And if you were to overlay the patterns of coronavirus in those different geographies, as it were, with the patterns of influenza in those geographies, it's absolutely identical. Uh, so, coronavirus hit fairly late uh, in the in the uh, as it were influenza year, and so uh, just just as um, Sir Patrick Vallance and John Giesica were saying back in spring, it's really going to take you know maybe eighteen months until we really know the patterns the patterns of of of, of, of the virus. So I'm, I'm just a tiny bit cautious there, but. Uh, In terms of this particular wave, it looks like it's just done basically. If you look at Sweden, the UK, New York City, all the places that were hit really hard, there hasn't been any any hint of a of of a second wave. So, if 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 that's it, then that's it's done. But I think we we just need to be a little bit cautious because of um, the seasonal patterns for other respiratory viruses.
1: it's often said that uh, the the pattern of COVID nineteen could well be mimicking that of the so called Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, which uh, uh, had three main phases. Uh, how useful is that 1918 experience? And if it's not, what would be the historical examples you would, from a statistician's point of view, you would draw attention to? Yeah, well, on
0: the on the, on the Spanish flu, uh, that's an interesting one because. As I understand it, the really, the really lethal wave there, uh, which was the, which was this, which was the second wave of the three, um, there still seems to be disagreement in the, in the, you know, the books and the papers I've read of whether that was simply, as it were, a true second wave of the same virus. Uh, in other words, it was as if uh, we sort of squashed the sombrero, as Boris Johnson said, and then it was, it, it, it was, you know, it was. People let up; they thought it had gone, and because of the because of the um, the summer, meaning that you know, influenza just doesn't make people in in summer. Basically, that was a, that's what people think of as a true second wave. Uh, in which case, that would be the kind of thing that, like I was saying five minutes ago, that might just give us a little bit of pause. Um, but as I understand it, the nineteen nineteen wave was a was just a huge mutation. And there's even debate about whether it was a completely separate virus that came in um, or whether it was, it was such a significant mutation of the 1918 uh, H1N1 virus that it was, it was knocking over people who'd had the virus the year before. So you, you, could get, you could get Spanish flu twice within a year, which is, you know, that's not a good time. Um, it, it, the truth is it's just too early to, to, to tell. We've got a completely typical um, epidemic curve for coronavirus regardless of whether there was a lockdown or not, regardless of whether people wore masks or not, there is just a, a particular curve, uh, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, that this virus makes. But, you know, at the moment, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, come you know, come the next winter. We've never seen this virus go into a winter before. Um, and so, you know, I, looking, if I had to sort of bet money, I would, I would probably bet money that there might be slightly more outbreak in the winter, a few more localized outbreaks in winter. But so many people must have been exposed to this now. It's gone into so many other nooks and crannies that I simply can't believe there'll be, you know, a serious second wave, barring, barring any mutation. But, you know, if I were to put money on that, I wouldn't put that much money on it. There was a a serious
1: flu outbreak that hit Britain in uh, 1969, is that relevant or or should we be treating that as a historic event which uh, has no real bearing on the situation we face now?
0: Yeah, well that that, that 1969 flu killed about 80,000 people in the UK of a much smaller population uh, and let's bear in mind that, um, you know, that's, that's roughly, that's roughly twice what uh, coronavirus has taken uh, in the, in, in England. You know, we might want to just reflect on the fact that life went on completely as normal. Um, I spoke to my parents, neither of them could actually remember the 1969 flu and I tried to have a conversation with them about it, but it clearly didn't leave that big an imprint on people. Um, and that, you know, that, that, uh, that sort of that, that was also I believe an h1n flu they seem to be the, the really nasty ones uh, certainly h1n1 flu was one of the one of the um, flu one of the viruses that became part of the cocktail, which was swine flu in two thousand and nine and h1 n1 virus is still going around now you know we get vaccinated for it every year. Um, it's still going around every year. I think we're on the 102nd wave. So before we get too exercised about the second wave of coronavirus, it's probably worth remembering that all of these influenza um, viruses, we have vaccines, they still go around every year. Um, vaccines are very, very rarely a panacea. Um, in fact, just just within you know, years that we'll remember, Graham, 2000 flu was, was a really, really bad year. Yeah, that winter there was more um, deaths per capita and the peak, of, the peak of COVID. And I don't recall anyone really talking about uh, bad flus in 2000. There was no suggestion of millennium celebrations being canceled. I think everyone was more worried about Y2K at the time. Um, so you know, it's, it's, I think what has changed this year is the availability of information. And so we've, um, I do think we've slightly blown things out of proportion
1: well i I, would, I want to pick up on on that point uh, i mean you know two thousand wasn't so very long ago even nineteen sixty nine is, is uh is just in my uh in, in my uh life um how is it that the attitude not just of the british government but of the vast majority of governments worldwide has changed i mean you say there's more information around is is that all there is to it what what has been the role of the the WHO in this, and uh, or is it just uh, that once when one country does something uh, very protective of its population, other governments feel they they will be judged by that yardstick and must do the same.
0: Gosh, this is going to be a this is going to be a chapter or two of the inevitable book, isn't it? I mean, what, one thing is is we have possibilities that we didn't have then, so we can now say we're going to close down schools and have online learning for a time. That was plainly impossible even five years ago and because it can be done then inevitably uh, it's, it's you know it's it's on the table we want to work out how to react to these things. I mean if, if, if you couldn't do uh, tuition by zoom I very much doubt that children would still be off school now let alone talking about them missing you're missing further school and same for work you know you just run a roughly a five-month experiment of the vast, you know, vast majority of people who work in offices working from home. I mean, plainly that would not have been possible even five years ago, but because it's possible, you know, it's on the table when you're working out how to react to these things. Uh, the other thing we have is, you know, because of the um, free availability of information, as soon as there's an opinion poll run, it's shared around the internet, pressures put on MPs, and before you know it, the, um, the pressure is, uh, it, can't, it can't be resisted. We seem to now have, you know, effectively government by opinion poll. I just can't imagine some of the great governments of the past um, running opinion polls before deciding how to react to these things. I mean, plainly, the, the UK government has changed its decision on how to react at various points of this epidemic based on what the opinion polls were saying. Right back to the original lockdown, you know, mid-March, it was very clear what the government's path was going to be here. And then there was sort of mass clamouring in the press. Uh, and then there was the first of many pivots. So you know if we want to, if we want to if you want a very clear telegraphing of you know, what government policy will be now we just have to look at the opinion poll and you can set your watch now that wouldn't that wouldn't have been a possibility before there was opinion polls and they were shared on social media uh, and you know governments are always going to react to what they know the public wants so there's all kinds of sort of societal changes that make this a heady brew, and if you overlay that with the the fact that you know we haven't had a a, a true war that's been on the front pages for an awfully long time. We've had quite a few um, very mild um, winters. And so risk has just not been on people's agenda for a long time. Um, Maybe there's other parts of psychology that would be worth exploring. For example, anyone who works in an office knows that there's a health and safety officer. You can go through life thinking you're taking no risk at any point. I think previous generations just knew that everything you do in life you're always taking risk and so maybe there's there's all kinds of constituent parts of modern society that um, have made a perfect sort of petri dish for this uh,
1: epidemic to be dropped into. There's a popular narrative emerging in which goes something like this the British government um, locked down a little bit later than it should have maybe a week or two earlier because of that, uh, and the decision to empty the hospitals, to empty them of uh, untested elderly, vulnerable people into care homes, we had the shockingly high rate of deaths in care homes. But that, and we are living with that legacy now. So, you know, if if only the government had acted both earlier and more sensibly, uh, we wouldn't now have this kind of long shadow. Of uh, other policies taking place, you know, that limiting our ability to go about our lives normally. Uh, which part of which parts of that narrative ring true to you, and which parts uh, um, strike you as mistaken?
0: Well, so I think we locked down from memory on March the twenty-third. So if we're talking about a week or two earlier, we're talking about maybe second week or so of March. I think that would have made absolutely no difference whatsoever. You know, I think that I think that the last time at which we could have locked down and, as it were, gone down the New Zealand route of trying to go for what's called zero COVID now, I think the last the last time that could have possibly have worked would have been roughly half term, before everybody you know went abroad, went skiing and so forth. But then we're talking about mid February. You know, we're talking about roughly around Valentine's Day. So that's roughly a month before. You know, before the before the earlier lockdown, that people are now saying we should have done. Um, I think it was it was it, by the time it was on the agenda, it was already far far too late for something this infectious, this easy to spread. You know, with this much asymptomatic spread, all the things we talked about on the last podcast that makes makes it so difficult to test and trace. You know, the last time you could have got around all those problems really it was mid February, and it was it was already too late, unfortunately. You know, it was all it was it was. It, it was already so well-seeded through the population by the time it was on the agenda that it, that it was always too late. And even if, if we had tried to lock down, we'd have, done, we'd have locked down from the wrong countries. I mean, doubtless, we would have locked down from China. And in fact, um, the, the people tracing the, the, um, the genetic makeup of the different strands of the virus circulating in the country, it's quite clear, in fact, Neil Ferguson pointed this out, that most of the viral strains in the country actually came from France, Spain, and Italy. So even if we had locked down, it would have been probably a month too late anyway and we'd have locked down from the wrong country. So it was by the time it was on the agenda, it was inevitable. So that, that part I, I don't agree with. Um, should we have um, just effectively done the original Patrick Balance plan of throwing a true protective ring around the vulnerable, um, the people particularly in the care homes? Uh, yes, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and... There was absolutely no defence for discharging knowingly infected people or untested people from hospitals into care this there's, there's, there's absolutely, that, that never made any sense. And, you know, whoever whoever is behind that that policy is, I don't know how they're going to argue. In the, in, you know, the inevitable inquiry that's coming down the tracks, they're going to have to spend a long time uh, trying to work out their justification for that because clearing the beds without testing, that is what has, in my in my belief, I think that's what led to the very high death toll.
1: Um, another aspect that the government put invested much hope in was the uh, test and trace technology, which hasn't worked in the way that it was hoped. It, it, has that really made much of a difference in your view?
0: No, I don't think it has really. I mean, it's, it's an incredible waste of money. I think they're up to about 10 billion, I read, which absolutely is, is absolutely befuddling. You know, they've obviously gone down the route of trying the wrong technology. I mean, trying to use Bluetooth for this is absolutely daft. I can sit at home and I can pick up my neighbor's Bluetooth uh, devices and they can pick up mine. So, you know, have we just had contact if this app were to work? It's absolutely farcical. Uh, and there's all the problems that we talked about on the last podcast, whereby from everything we know about this virus, the way that most people have it asymptomatically, uh, and you have a very short time in... Which to, um, in which to trace, uh, in which to trace the number of people that they may have in turn infected. It was it was just never worth going down the contact tracing route from everything we know about the virus. It was I think it was always it was always a red herring, and unfortunately from having you know as, as it were nailed their colours to the test and trace mask, the main thing that the government's lost is reputation for uh, competence, and you know, they and because they created expectation. That then leads to unions um, demanding that the thing is up and running. Even though, even though I think if you looked at the basic facts of the, of the virus and the disease, you would never, you should never have gone down that route. Um, particularly when they were, you know, you're largely testing and tracing the healthy. So if you, if are you know, if you if, if you're constantly finding and asking to isolate, you know, healthy twenty-year-olds, you know, that, those are never the people who are going to be ill anyway. So you're not saving anybody from going to hospital, let alone dying. Now, having said that, you know if we just kind of riff riff on this uh, contact tracing idea a little bit, uh, I think a natural development of it um, is is going to be what Matt Hancock is now talking about, which is mass surveillance testing. Um, uh, you know, the next sort of outgrowth of the ONS's surveillance testing, and this actually, I think. Um, is, is maybe a little bit more promising, depending on how they use it. Uh, because if we know, let's let's say let's say there is another um, resurgence. Come the autumn, come the winter. And if we know whereabouts in the country it's a problem, and we can get increasingly localised. You know, not just to Birmingham, which is that's way too big an area, for example. but in a particular areas, maybe particular districts. Then once we know where the virus is actually circulating in numbers what we can do then is you know, isolate the vulnerable there. You know, not lock not down schools or close restaurants or shops or, you know, not, not really have any interruption to, as it were, normal life. Because what we really want is for the virus to be circulating so that the healthy are immune and then won't be infecting the vulnerable. But, but when we know where the virus is, those are the areas where we can lock down the vulnerable. So the people that we know who ought to be shielding in the areas where the virus is circulating, in a very targeted way, we can say to them that you need to you need to shield or cocoon for the next three weeks. The people in the care homes, okay, unfortunately we have to stop visitors for the next month. You know, to the extent we can stop the care homes getting agency staff for three or four weeks, maybe we can be very very targeted there in protecting the vulnerable, the people who would actually get ill if they get the virus. And if that's the way um, that the government will be able to use the mass surveillance testing then I think that will be all to the good. But contact tracing healthy people um, as a way of interrupting something that's so widespread, I think that was always a bit of a red herring. So your message is, in essence, uh, protect the vulnerable
1: and let the rest of us go about our daily life as we used to in the good old days.
0: Yes, and that's all. That's a paraphrase of exactly what Patrick Balance was saying on about the 15th of March you know he went on he went on Sky saying more or less exactly that he had other people you know appearing on Newsnight night saying exactly that and for some reason we didn't stick with it and I can see I can see why with you know the, the television scenes and the diminishing NHS capacity I can see why they bottled it but with the benefit of hindsight it, plan A was always the right plan Well, uh, one day the the
1: Patrick Valence memoirs will make for very interesting reading, uh, particularly if they are candid. Uh, In the meanwhile, Alastair Haymes, thank you very much for uh, talking us through your uh, crunching of the numbers and your perspective on where we are with coronavirus. Thank you very much, Greg.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.